Hello, folks. Welcome to this week's edition of the UConn Report podcast. I'm Dave Borges, UConn men's basketball beat writer for Hearst Connecticut Media. This week, we are joined by really one of the preeminent voices in college basketball media. She's been covering the game for a while now. She's currently the senior writer at the senior writer at the Athletic, and she has a new book out called "The Big East." Inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball history. Dana O'Neill, Dana, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I, I was reading a good part of your book the other night, and uh, I think the title, particularly the words most entertaining and influential, really are apt because you, you did a great job with the book. Uh, it's a fun read, and, and the league really just kind of lent itself to great stories with the with the, the characters and the, and the color of um, the colorful personalities in the league, right? Absolutely. I mean, the entertaining part is a no-brainer because I feel like the, the games were almost like high theater. They were so well-played and so intense and tough and all of that on the court. But then off the court, you know, the the chaos of the coaches and the way they behave just it made it a whole new level of that we don't see today. That's for darn sure. We didn't see really then until we got the John Thompson's and Jim Beheim's and Luke Karnasekas going at one another. It was it was wild, if you think about it, honestly. I love Jim Calhoun's quote, like Camelot with bad language, right? Great quote. I told him that. I said, I actually was arguing to make that the, like the subhead of the book at one point, because I just thought it was such a perfectly said line. I, I laughed out loud when he told me that one. Yeah, it's it's such a it's such a great book and a great story. And, you know, you, you start off really with the origins of the league with Dave Gavitt and and um certainly take us through Patrick Ewing and Georgetown's years. And really, it, it seems like, you know, of, of the original program, just about every one of them had sort of their moment from Georgetown, St. John's, Syracuse, Providence with Rick Pitino, yep. Seton Hall, um, you know, Villanova, of course, uh, winning the national title in 85. Um, it's just an amazing story. And like you said, the color and the characters and the, and the great players of the league had. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing that Dave Gavitt was most proud of. It was like, you know, Okay, so he knew Syracuse and, and Georgetown and St. John's were already pretty established, but it was the way the league elevated the other teams that didn't have that identity. You know, Providence really didn't have that great identity until Rick Pitino comes along. And Seton Hall, like you mentioned, was like awful. I mean, they were, they were in the basement. And even UConn, I mean, there was a lot of pushback about adding UConn to the league because they didn't fit. And he insisted that he thought that playing in the Big East could make UConn a better program. And then, my God, I mean, it's unbelievable what UConn and Jim Calhoun put together. So I think that was the thing that he was the most proud of, is how much every team got better because of its association with the Big East. What was kind of your vantage point throughout the arc of the, of the conference uh, conferences rise? I know obviously you covered Villanova um, in the early th- 2000s for the most part, um, but, you know, how much Big East were you able to cover over the years? And sort of what was your vantage point throughout a lot of a good part of the history? Yeah, I mean, I was a kid growing up in New Jersey. So, you know, that was a lot of mine in the early 80s. I was a, a fan watching it at home like everybody else on Big Monday, having no thought that I would be a sports writer, let alone cover it, but just enjoyed it from its just sitting in front of my television. When I first graduated, I worked at the Trentonian, a, a little tabloid newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey. So I was right on the cusp of the league. I mean, I didn't do a whole lot because we were more like Rutgers, Princeton and all that, but I could still see it and watch it and enjoy it. I, I kind of jumped in with two feet once I got to the Philadelphia Daily News um, with primary, with primarily with Villanova, but that opened me up to 
all of the other teams, you know, within the league, because obviously I was going to all these games and got to know them all. So, you know, I'm lucky enough to say I was at the six overtime game. I was at Kemba Walker's, you know, breaking Gary McGee's ankle moment. Um, you know, a lot of great young, older moments, if you will. But I certainly remember watching all of the other ones as a fan. I was at both those games as well. They the six overtimes and Stephen Dorf almost kicked over my laptop when he jumped on the uh, press table. <laughs> I, I think I was actually a row back. I, I, I embellish that story a little bit, but <laughs> my favorite memory of that game, and I'll ask yours in a second, but my, mine is, for some reason, the thing that emblazoned in my memory is when sometime during the game, Stanley Robinson got a steal and took, took the took down the floor for a windmill, windmill dunk, and I swear to God, I felt like as he started his windmill, I looked over at Calhoun, and he jumped out of his seat, ready to, he was going to grab and pull him off the court if he missed it. And it feels like it all happened in one fraction of a second. But he did the windmill and he made it and Calhoun <laughs> sat down. But uh, that, that's one of my one of my memories. What are, what are your memories of that game? Oh, man, I have so many. First of all, I got there that morning at 1030 because I was working at ESPN. So I think that I forget who the noon game was, to be honest with you. But I was there for all of them. So I walked in the building at 1030, 1045 in the morning. I left the building at like 345. I was just like dazed and confused. So that's my overall memory. But so many things like I remember at one point, and I mentioned this in the book, there was a moment, I forget which overtime it was, you know, every in between all the the um, overtimes, the ushers always come on the court and stand in front of the media tables to, to guard them from, I guess, from crazy fans. And, you know, the fans of the garden always would come up and like kind of stick their beer on the press table to like hang out. So yeah. anyway, one guy at one point, this usher stands in front of me and he goes, when do we go to a shootout? Because it was like, we're at like the fourth <laughs> or fifth overtime and we're all just exhausted, but nobody wanted it to end. I, and, and then I remember going in the locker room afterwards and Johnny Flynn just looked like, he just looked like a piece of, like a rag doll. He was just so exhausted and so spent. And I kept thinking, how in the world are they going to play again tomorrow? I don't even want to wake up tomorrow. It, it was, it was insane. And they went. They went to overtime the next night too, right? Yeah, they did. They did. Yes. And then the, the the incredible quote from your book uh, from Calhoun. When people when people ask me what it was like to play in that game, that's like getting shot at Gettysburg and asking me how I felt. I got <laughs> shot, and that's so true because I remember after the game, and then for weeks after that, he just could not say anything positive about that game. He finally has in recent years. Uh, I've got him to talk glowingly of the game, but he couldn't accept that loss. No, he, he is, as I mentioned in the book, the world's greatest loser. I mean, he really is. And, and, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, if you're a coach, you probably shouldn't like to lose. But he is not a gracious loser, loser in the moment, ever. And I remember in that moment thinking like, oh, everyone's going to just talk wax eloquent about what a wonderful moment this was and how lucky we're. And he's like, I want no part of it. So I remember I asked him about it, about the book. And that's when he came, came up with a great line about the Gettysburg thing, because he's right. I mean. Yeah, it was a great game, but they lost. So I understand where he's coming from. I do. Yeah. In, in doing your research and your interviews for the book, was there anything that really kind of caught you by surprise and something you didn't know about at all and kind of really learned about through through this um, you know, writing the book? Yeah, a couple of things. One, I, I didn't realize how close the Penn State um, membership was in 1982. Um, I... I you know, I'd heard flirtations about it, but I, and I'd heard that Joe Paterno was kind of poking around thinking that, you know, the football team needed a home. I didn't realize that the league voted three times and failed to admit Penn State on a five to three vote three times in a row. And, you know, with the beautiful benefit of hindsight, you got to wonder what in the world we'd be looking at today with conference realignment, right? I mean, I, I don't know that that would have solved all the ills because football money wasn't football money at the time, but 
right. it certainly is a curious question, like what could have been and might have been. So I wasn't really aware at how um, how close that was. I also honestly wasn't aware, going back to the Yukon thing, um, how much pushback there was against Yukon. I really thought, I just presumed, well, they made sense, right? They fit in the in the geographical landscape, but there was a lot of resistance because they weren't very good. Um, they were a big state school in the middle of nowhere. And it, it's hard to imagine, you know, especially since we went through a time when the Yukon wasn't part of the Big East, it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have been part of it. I thought that was really interesting how other, other ADs and, and presidents even were like, eh. And I also thought my other favorite thing that I learned was that um, they first went after Holy Cross and Holy Cross, Cross president said, no, thank you. <laughs> so they went to Boston College. And I wonder now if Holy Cross rused that decision a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no question. Yeah, and they really kind of created a monster with UConn. It took a few years, but uh, yeah. and you, you devote a chapter to UConn's sort of rise and from um, you know Calhoun's hire to the uh, the 1988 NIT title, the, the the dream season two years after that, it really uh, really a detailed look at the, uh, the 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 Ray Allen Allen Iverson Big East tournament game and up until the, and then you know the 1999 first national title and yeah you kind of, and I think as you mentioned in that chapter um, you kind of really kind of carried the torch of the Big East throughout the 90s right they they really did I mean that's the interesting thing is like the team that nobody wanted you know everyone had their heyday in the 80s and Georgetown, Syracuse and St. John's obviously carried a lot of the weight in the 80s. But then, you know, those coaches started to retire and move on and things kind of happened, you know, things changed over there dramatically. And and UConn, I don't say saved the day, that's the, probably a bit of an overstatement, but they kept the brand alive. I mean, they really did. They they created such magic with on the court and such a national branding that they really helped keep that league in a trans in a really difficult transitional period because, you know, it, it was great. It was so great so quickly, but to hold on to that was really difficult to do, understandably. And they kind of went through, I don't say a lull, but a comparative lull when you're putting three teams in the final four. I mean, everything's gonna be a lull. And UConn kind of came along and said, No, no, we we still matter over here. And they that brought everybody back up with them. You know, the competition against UConn elevated every other team with them. Right, right. One, by the way, one other thing uh, interesting about the book that are the, the Big East, those legendary kind of Big East coaches meetings down in, in Florida and other kind of warm locales and a story about Rick Pitino. And I, I'm from Rhode Island. I grew up a Providence fan and the, the, the 87 um, PC team is right in my wheelhouse. That was really the first team I, I loved um, growing up. And um, uh, but Pitino standing up for sort of the, the, the lesser school, the lower, you know, I guess they wanted certain cut of a basketball deal to just go to John Thompson, Karnaseka, um, Raleigh, and maybe was Bayheim the fourth, I'm not sure. Yeah. And, and Rick kind of stood up for the lower, lesser coaches, almost got in a fist fight with Raleigh, and but ultimately um, won out in the end. It was kind of a, an even split among the coaches, and that was interesting. One uh, one story I've heard over the years, um, at one of those uh, golf outings down in Florida or wherever, the uh, the tea times were kind of listed, and this is after Calhoun had won two, maybe even maybe even his third national title, but definitely more than one. And uh, the tea times were listed, and Jim didn't really like his tea time for whatever reason. And I guess he was heard exclaiming, uh, "How many national titles do you have to win around here to get a good tea time?" <laughs> I, mean, that was, I mean, that sounds like that sounds right up Jim Calhoun's alley. I don't know whether that's embellished or not, but uh, but the, the, again, the color and character of those coaches, right? 
Yeah, those meetings were insanity. And that's honestly how this book sort of started. I wrote a story for The Athletic during Rivalry Week a couple of years ago, just talking about, you want to hear about rivalries? Well, all right, well, look, go behind the scenes of these Big East meetings. They were insane. Like they were, they were brawls practically screaming and, you know, cursing at one another and, you know, yelling at, at Art Highland, the supervisor of officials. And when I, after I wrote that story, a book agent from uh, DC reached out to me. He's like, I think there should be a book done on the Big East. I've been looking for somebody. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah. So, I mean, that was sort of the impetus for the book was like all these crazy meetings. I knew how nuts they were. I mean, you know, they have stories of like Lou Carnesecca, like losing a hearing aid and crawling under the table and missing a vote. And like, everyone's like, where's Louie? And Rick Barnes is like, he's right here on the floor. Like what in the world? And, you know, and there's, and Rick Pitino told a great story because Gavitt used those golf outings as a way to sort of get people to deal with one another, they were, especially if they were fighting. Like he would like to put them together in a twosome or a foursome so the next day they'd have to talk to one another. And Patino was in this massive fight with Roley and, you know, Gavitt, of course, partnered them together. And Rick's like, I walked all 18 holes because <laughs> he refused yeah. to get in the golf cart because that's Rick. Um, but yeah. that, they, were, they were as bananas as anything. But the cool thing about that that I thought was interesting was that they all understood that you could kvetch and scream at one another behind closed doors and Gavitt was fine with that. But when you went out in the public, you put the biggies first. You had right. to promote the league because collectively you, you were greater than you were individually. And all those coaches and all those personalities, as big as they were, they followed that message. They, you know, they trusted Dave implicitly. That was part of it. But they agreed that that was more important, which is really hard to do if you think about it. I thought that was really amazing. It tells you how much they actually I understood the importance of the league and how much they idolized Dave Gavitt. Yeah, no question. And the book, and again, it's the Big East inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball history. Um, it, it basically kind of ends when the big, the, the real Big East, as as Dan Hurley likes to call it, right. although he used to call it. Now I don't think he's using that term anymore. But oh, yeah. um, uh, it ends with basically the Catholic Seven kind of leaving. And um, so that really, obviously, and you wrote a book about, I believe, the 2016 Villanova yeah. national title. Um, and they've, of course, won that year and then two years later. So really, since the, the time frame ending after your book, Villanova has obviously become the the dominant team in the league. And, and Jay Wright, who I'm sure you know very well, um, he's really kind of taken over as the the, the man in the, in the league, right, as, as far as the, you know, the, the new uh, Bayheim or Thompson or, or Calhoun. And do you think he wears that crown pretty well? I mean, he, he, do you think he understands what he what he has there and, what, and he wears it pretty well? I, I think he does. It's really kind of funny, the arc of his career. I was there when he first got hired at Villanova. And so, you know, you used to go to these Big East, meet, Big East media days. I'm sure you remember you had Calhoun in one corner, Patino in one corner, Bayheim in one corner, you know, all these coaches and, and Bob Huggins at one point. And like, you know, Jay was like the little kid waving like, hi, here I am. And now he's sort of the senior leader, not just because the Villanova is very good, but because he's been around the longest. Um, but I think he totally gets it. You know, he grew up in suburban Philadelphia. He grew up a fan of the Big Five. He grew up a fan of Villanova. He grew up a fan of the Big East. He was on Rolly's staff at, at a very young age. He was part of those crazy moments in the in the you know back corridors in the Big East. He understands how important the league is to keep it afloat. He respects it. He believes in it. And I think it's pretty cool. You know, there's a lot of infighting and bickering as we're seeing with conference realignment all across the country with 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 schools and everything like that. Big East is pretty solid and the camaraderie among the coaches in that league, I think is pretty legit. Like 
it has that feel that it used to have back then, right? Like these guys understand, like we need each other to survive and we need each other to be good. I feel like they're, they're a throwback in that sense. And certainly Jay starts that, but it goes down from, you know, Ed Cooley to all the way, you know, go all the way out to Doug McDermott through, you know, Danny Hurley. They all understand that. And I think it's really impressive what they've been able to rebuild, if you will. Yeah, I mean, Ed Cooley, a Providence kid, he, he kind of yeah. gets it. He gets what the Big East means. And Dan Hurley played in the Big East. He really gets it. I mean, he, yeah. Um, yeah, no question about that. So let's talk about the Big East, the modern Big East, today's Big East. And, you know, last year, let's be honest, it was kind of a down year for the league. I mean, really three at-large bids. Georgetown snuck in there by with a great run through the tournament, Big East tournament. But um, And then, you know, entering this year, a lot of people, and myself included, um, kind of wondered how strong the league was going to be again. We're only two teams in the preseason top 25. Um, not a lot of representation among sort of like, the, the you know, the Naismith award list. I think there were only two Big East players on that. Um, things like that. It seemed like the league was getting a little disrespected. And like I said, I kind of understood it. But then great job in the Gavit games going six and two. And I think they're five and four against top 25 teams right now. The league is as a whole. So what do you think of the league, you know, as you sit here today on um, – December 1st, uh, what do you think of the Big East this season so far? Yeah, I, th- I think they've done remarkably well. And I agree with you. Like at the beginning, I, I wasn't quite sure myself. Like, okay, I think I, I think they'll be all right, but I'm not really sure what all right's going to look like. How good can these teams get? And I think the interesting thing is that, um, you know, obviously Villanova is very good. Obviously UConn's very good. I think we, we kind of knew that going in, but I'm anxious. Like I'm going next week to see Seton Hall, Texas. I think Seton Hall is dangerous. I think they're a team that, I think there are a lot of teams in the Big East that are going to get, you know, come March, I'm not, you know, four or five, six seeds, somewhere in that range. And they're going to be really tricky teams for these so-called, you know, established teams to handle. I think I think they're playing well. I love what Shaka Smart's already doing at Marquette. I think that's great. I mean, I'm curious yeah. to see, is, I'm curious to see is DePaul like, you know, <laughs> where does that end? I have no idea. It's sort of an annual right question, now, right? right? I know, annual question, right? You see them at the top of the standings. You're like, all right. But, you know, I think, um, you know, St. John's has got Kansas coming in. I think I, I think that these, these teams are good enough um, because they're old. I'm a big believer in old. Um, yeah. And I think that they're tough. Like, the way these teams play these days is kind of how they used to play back in the day. Like, the Big East brand is very much alive and well. And I think that the way they defend and the way they play collectively, I just, I just think it's going to be a pretty – solid year for the league frankly again and i think because also you look around the rest of the country like there's four or five teams at the top that are really really good sure but there's not like 12 teams at the top that are really really good right so there's definitely wiggle room yeah no question xavier is a team yeah he's been out injured but i think he's coming back soon and um that'll help a lot yeah and um like you said seton hall seton hall is a team that has a lot of talent. I was just wondering how it was all going to gel Me together, too. but it seems like, you know, they won at Michigan. Uh, I think their only losses to Ohio state, correct? Yep. If I'm not mistaken. Yes. And we, we saw, you know, how, how good Ohio state can be last night. So um, yeah, I, I think the league is, is still pretty strong and looks like, and I, I wanted to ask you too, the eternal question you mentioned uh, conference realignment and sort of, there's a lot of speculation and rumor and really that's all it is right now. I think, um, Will the Big East expand? And if so, who do they bring in? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? 
I mean, I had thoughts. I talked to Val about it and, you know, Val Ackerman, she said that, um, you know, she has directed her presidents to have conversations. That doesn't mean that they're out there picking and choosing. You know, I think they really need to be smart. Um, you can expand just for the sake of expanding, but you don't necessarily make yourself better. Right. So, so I think I, you have to be very careful about who they choose. Like you have a really good product right now. And yeah, there are teams that fit your mold, if you will, St. Louis, and you can go out there. I mean, Loyola Chicago just got picked up by uh, the Atlantic 10, obviously. Um, but I don't know that you just add willy-nilly just to say you have more schools. I mean, the Big East is in a really sweet spot right now. Nobody's coming to pick apart the Big East because they don't have anything that anybody wants. There's no football here. They're pretty solid. So, you know, the big the big question always, and I've entertained this question with Val Ackerman and with Mark Pugh, is Gonzaga, right? I mean, is there yeah. a way you can make a team in Spokane <laughs> fit in the Big East? You know, it sounds ludicrous, but, you know, West Virginia is in the Big 12 and, you know, the big not, nothing makes sense. The Big 12 has 10 teams, so it's nothing, nothing matters in terms of title. The only way you can add Gonzaga is if you choose, in my opinion, to make a West Coast branch. Like you have to be able, and I wrote a kind of an, like a, a mock-up of this. Like you add Gonzaga, Boise State, San Diego State, St. Mary's, you pick a few teams out there. Pepperdine, not good enough, but whatever. A bunch of teams out there. And they kind of come across the country kind of like the Pac-12 does on a Thursday, Saturday, right? So Gonzaga comes across back and forth a couple of times. They stop in the middle. That's the only way it will work. You can't, and it can only be for basketball. You can't ask your soccer teams to do that midweek. You you have to be, and then so it becomes a question of when you add all that travel budget into these schools, what are you gaining? You're gaining Gonzaga, fantastic, but is it? What else are you adding, and what are you subtracting? Um, you know, is it doable? Anything is doable. <laughs> is it likely? I don't know. I don't know. Someone's going to take Gonzaga at some point, is my guess. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's 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 fascinating, and if Gonzaga were anywhere further east it would make it would be a no-brainer but uh it's just so nutty and, and, and spokane isn't even seattle right well I mean, that's, that's i mean having been to spokane m multiple times let me tell you, you know, my son actually is a college senior and he thought about applying there and it's the same conversation i had with him that worked for the big east that's fine it's really hard to get to you can't fly direct if you're flying commercial to spokane you have to fly to connect or you just fly to Seattle and drive three hours. It's not an easy place to get to. Um, obviously, everybody charters. I understand that, but it's expensive. And so, like I said, the only way you can do it is if you say, OK, West Coast Conference, West Coast Big East plays East Coast Big East, maybe four, six games, however many pick the number in a three, like they cross pollinate three weekends and that's it. And otherwise, you kind of make a division thing and the divisions meet in the Big East tournament in the garden they work it out that way but you can't ask them to play a full round robin it's just it's just ludicrous it would be just too impossible and too expensive how you know how no. do you ask a school like providence to to go across the country 12 times a year this is not logical and i wonder I'm, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head here but if you had that cross-pollination could you do it sort of like in sort of late december early mid-january when the schools aren't and classes aren't in session yeah. so you're not missing the I don't know if that's logistically possible either to have every school that everyone's on different schedules, of course, but um, things like that. Yeah. It's and, and like you said, you get Gonzaga, you know, St. Mary's would make sense because it fits the profile. And it's kind of Gonzaga's rival. Right. Um, but then uh, after that, what are you looking at? If you take San Diego state, for example, yeah. 
they have a football program. So you have to take them with the understanding that their football program has to go take care of their football program, which is great until somebody else wants to take the whole school. So then you open yourself up to a situation you don't have to be opening yourself up to, right? Right now, like I said, no one's taking Big East teams because they don't have football. You start, except for UConn. If you start taking <laughs> well. schools vaguely, <laughs> I mean, theoretically, yeah. uh, if you start taking teams that have football, it makes you, makes you vulnerable to being adding and subtracting and, and things like that along the line. And there's not, I look, there's not that many great uh, West Coast based Catholic school basketball centric teams out there. San Francisco, it, Pepperdine is like basically the West Coast Conference, really, is what you'd be taking. Well, what about, and you know, this will we'll end it here with as far as realignment because you could it's just, it's insane, but like, what, what about maybe a Wichita State as well? At least they're yeah. sort of out in the West. Then you, you got Creighton out there. Maybe yeah. same same marriage. Maybe you get four. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think Wichita State is a great. I mean, is a great ad, and I think they would come in a heartbeat. Obviously, yeah. you know, the American is not what they signed up for, um, and I think they're a, a well-established, great program that it kind of solidifies again that Midwest section with Creighton, as you said, and Marquette, and all of that. So, you know, yeah, I mean. The other, it's just like I said, if, if, if you're going to add Gonzaga, you have to add some like partners out there. And that's where it gets messy just because it's, it's just so out there, <laughs> literally. Yeah, no question. Well, back to reality. Uh, it was actually <laughs> happening. That was fun. What are your thoughts on, on UConn this year from what you've seen? Um, seven and one, uh, pretty decent showing out in the, in the battle for Atlantis. Uh, otherwise, really just all cupcakes. And, and they kind of, again, we're here on December 1st, uh, the, last night they uh, kind of struggled against Maryland Eastern Shore, which, let's be honest, is, is one of the weaker teams in the country. Um, but overall, what are, you, what are your thoughts on UConn this season? Well, yeah, I think I, I've, I've been impressed. Like, I, I was not um, – I don't think – you know, yeah, they haven't played the hardest schedule in the world. But, look, everyone right now is surviving in advance. And I, I've been really impressed with kind of how hard they're playing. I think their their talent is definitely there. I'm curious, you know, what's going to happen. I know, you know Tyrese Martin hurt, got, was out, right? He got hurt, I believe. And yep. didn't Sonogo leave last night too? So I'm a little curious about where that's going to land. Um, yep. if, they're, if, you know, if they're out for extended periods of time, that makes things a little bit tricky as you head into the Big East season at the end of this month, right? But the good news, as we all know, is um, injuries can be forgiven in in seeding and things like that. And as you'd rather be injured now than in March. But I, I look, I I thought when they added UConn back, I and when they hired Danny, I thought this was just a matter of time. Like they're going to get things rolling again. And I think that's where we are. I think we're rolling. Um, I think they're going to you know continue to be a threat within the league and nationally. They've just kind of got to get their feet underneath of them right now. But like I said, I, I'm hopeful that these injuries aren't um, legit. Yeah, they're saying potentially two to four weeks for Martin, yeah. and it's too early right now. Again, as we speak today, uh, it's to an say ab about, abdominal thing, right, or something with Sonogo. Yeah, so um, who knows what the, exactly that is, but uh, we'll see. And then they have one more kind of cupcake this weekend. And then they got um, they're at West Virginia next week, right. and then they're playing St. Bonnie's in the in the never in the I'll never forget tribute classic. So um, and then of course yep. the Big East starts. So yeah, it's, it's getting to be crunch time. Yeah, and they played a good enough schedule to get you know get their, I mean, St. Bonaventure is, is one of the best mid-majors out there. West Virginia is a little bit mi a mystery, I, I think, right now, but they're never easy to handle. So, right. you know, they're going to make their own hay with, with the league, obviously. Um, but I, I would argue that they would be right in the mix to win a Big East title. I mean, they're good enough. I mean, Villanova is really good. I'm not saying that, but Villanova is really struggling with depth, and that yeah. makes them very vulnerable. 
Yeah, that was my last question as far as the Big East. Uh, you, you know, Villanova, obviously the class of the league, I think we would agree, but death does seem to be an issue for them. And uh, he, he only seems, you know, he really seems to have a short rotation in recent years, right? Yeah, he does. And and that's fine. Um, but I'll tell you what, I was at that game against Purdue and, and the Mohegan Sun, and it really, they, they were dead. I mean, those guys, you know, back-to-back games, I get it. So that's not usual, but they were, they, you know, they're coming up short on their end of the, at the end of the game on all of their shots. There's a reason, you know, they just, they're playing 37, 38 minutes. He's got to get, He's got to get guys healthy. You know, Brian Antoine, his shoulder injuries all, forever. Hopefully, yeah. he can get him healthy. But he's also, and and Jay said after the game, they have to. He has to get to trust younger players. But you know, I'm thinking with the Big Five games he's kind of got right now, this is the great chance. He's been playing a few more guys. This is the chance to kind of like roll some guys out, get them some minutes, get your security blankets going. He's not going to play many more than six or seven a lot but you need to have somebody that you can at least throw in there for a few minutes I mean against against Purdue they played Chris Archibiak and I think five minutes and everybody else and that was it I mean they played six guys Caleb Daniels off the bench and that's a big ask against Purdue <laughs> yeah yeah and, I, and I've had Purdue number one the last couple of weeks too I, I've, I've liked it from the start like you said old is good old. they had all five starters coming back and um, a lot of talent and, and yeah very good team right there um so ultimately you, you think Big East maybe Four, five, maybe six uh, at-large teams this year, or yeah. I mean, I'm teams? trying to do the math in my head, right off the top of my head. I mean, I would, you know, no less than four, and I can yeah. see an argument for six. Obviously, you know, a couple of teams kind of have to get their acts together a little bit and see how things shake out in the Big East tournament. But you know, look, I, I still think that they're they're an easy mini multiple bid league, which. If you had asked me when they formed this thing, if that was going to happen, I would have been doubting Thomas. I'll be honest with you. I was concerned about their ability to kind of get a stranglehold, but they have been formidable. And I think I think the, the bigger thing for the league right now, especially on the heels of last year, is not just getting in the tournament. You got to make some hay. When you get, you got to have some teams get somewhere. You got to get into the second weekend, you know, to make a presence known. It's, it's great to get in, but you got to stick around a little bit. And I think they have teams, like we said, that that can actually do that because they play really hard. No doubt about it. Dana, the Big East, inside the most entertaining and influential conference in college basketball history. That's the book. Where can people get that now? Pretty much anywhere you buy your books. Uh, local bookstores, hopefully, are, are stacking it up. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, the, the Penguin Random House website, if you'd like to go to the publisher, they've got them there, too. Awesome. Dana O'Neill, thank you very much for coming on the show this week and uh, looking forward to seeing you throughout the season at the various basketball arenas, I'm sure. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Dana. Take care.